BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I am so very excited. By the way, happy November. Forgot to say that last week. Very excited for this episode today with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She was so insightful. We covered so much. A lot of your questions, which were very insightful in their own ways. And I'm very grateful for them. I'm grateful you submitted them. I learned a lot. We talk about all the things from in laws, which is a topic that we have needed to cover for a while. If my in-laws are listening, don't worry. I got you. We're not saying anything bad because you know I love you. But in-laws were a must in terms of a discussion topic point. We also talk about relationship timelines. And if you are not on the same timeline as your partner, which happens a lot more than you think. And I don't just mean to get married. I also mean to have kids I mean, to move somewhere, to ask for a raise, whatever it is, we're going to talk about that. We talk about a lot. We cover a lot, confidence in relationships. So I think you're going to enjoy the episode. Before we get into it, I will be answering questions that I didn't get to on last week's episode, and then we will get right into it. Also, if you are watching the episodes on YouTube, I want to apologize in advance for this one. I realize on the Zoom episodes, my attention span is very terrible. Like it's crazy. And I don't know if you're like this when you're on Zoom. When I'm in person, when we're at the studio, it's amazing, right? When I'm on Zoom, I'm definitely listening to the guests. Don't get me wrong, but I am looking everywhere. I am so easily distracted. It's crazy. I don't actually have ADD or ADHD. Maybe I do. And I don't know, but I don't actually have it. But the distractions are too distracting for me. I get so easily just, I'm like looking at the recorder, making sure we're good on the time. I'm looking at the next question I have for the guest. It's really annoying to watch on YouTube. So if you ever watch our Zoom recordings on YouTube, I apologize because I just watched it and I was like, Ugh, I cannot like, can this, can this woman, AKA me look at the guest and not look in a million different directions? Like how annoying am I sometimes? So sorry about that. Sorry about that. Somebody asked, when is it ever the right move to unfollow a guy? Or do you always just be unbothered? To be honest with you, 
I always be unbothered unless they unfollow me. If they unfollow me, don't worry. I'm unfollowing them. I'm not going to be a loser lurker who's the only one following the other. But I'm also not going to admit that I don't, that I care in the way of unfollowing them. I know this sounds stupid. I know it sounds petty. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm not saying it's not toxic. But I'm not unfollowing you first. You have to unfollow me first. It's just what you have to do. I muted you like so long ago that I don't even know I'm still following you, but I'm not going to unfollow you unless you unfollow me if you're an ex. Someone asked, how do you initiate sexting? So I would probably send a sexual photo, not necessarily a nude, but like a sexy photo. And then I'd hope that they would be like, oh my God, so hot. Wish I was there or something. Right. And then you could be like, what would you do if you were here? And all of a sudden, guess what? You're sexting. This person asked how to communicate my sexual needs with my significant other of five months. I'm scared that they'll be like, you waited so long. So better late than never. Obviously, earlier is better. We know this. But sometimes you don't get fully comfortable with someone until, let's say, five months in. So I think it's very reasonable for you to be like, I wanted to tell you that I'm really into pegging or whatever it is, you know? I didn't tell you before because I don't know, I was nervous about it, but now I feel like we really know each other. Would you ever be open to trying this? Or, you know, sometimes I like a finger in my butt. Would you be into that? Like, if not, I totally get it. It's not a deal breaker for me, but if you would be, and you know what? The right partner wants to please you. They really do. They want to do all the things that make you feel good and they won't argue with you about that. I promise you. This person said mid thirties, female best place to meet guys in New York grown and sexy vibes. Okay. Hear me out. Truly the best place to meet. And maybe not at night, maybe at night, definitely during the day at lunchtime is Hillstone at the bar. There are so many guys. There's now only one Hillstone in New York. And every time I go there, there is a slew of hot ass businessmen sitting at the bar or sitting with another businessman or waiting for a table. They're at Hillstone. I'm telling you, if they're not at Hillstone, they're at a steakhouse. I understand this is a generalization, but every time I've gone to a steakhouse or to Hillstone, which is basically a steakhouse, I have seen a slew of hot guys. I can't make this up. I'm telling you that that's the truth. Other places, I went to Lartuzzi the other night for a birthday. It's a beautiful, like really hard to get into Italian restaurant in the West Village. There's a bar scene a little bit. I think there's a bar scene at, where was I just where there's, well, there's a little bit of a bar scene at Pastis. Oh, at Teresi, there's a bar scene, but it's usually like, couples. I don't know how much it's a singles bar scene. I would just say that steakhouses and Hillstone are a safe bet. If you're, if we're talking about restaurants, if you want to meet, you know, other kinds of people. Oh, I recently went to swingers, which is like a golf mini golf place. Tons of people there because a lot of companies will do like little company retreaty things there. So you have like all these, you know, working men, working women, whatever, and they're doing their thing. They're playing mini golf. You end up interacting because these mini golf courses are so small that like you're right behind another, you know, group. So great options there. Great options. Golf places, Hillstone, 
steakhouses, sporting events, sports games. Trust me, that's a good place. I feel like I don't know if it's baseball season because I know nothing about sports, but baseball seems like a pretty chill sport where no one's actually really paying attention. So go to a baseball game. Okay, this is the last one I'm going to answer, and I am not. I'm going to be harsh, and I'm not. You'll just I'll read it. Someone said, why do guys make plans to have a date and then never follow up when approaching that date? I am saying this. Let me be clear, knowing very well that this has happened to me, too. So I'm putting myself down. Do not think that I'm coming from some high horse place putting you down. No, but I will say guys do this because you weren't memorable. If you have a conversation on an app where you go back and forth and you're like, how's your week been? Oh, it's been good. Same. Like, how's yours? Great. What do you, did you have a nice Halloween? Nice. What'd you be? Same. I was a cat. Cool. Um, you want to meet for a drink? Great. What time? Seven. Cool. Here's my number. Great. Let's confirm. Like, that's not something that a guy is going to remember. And this is what I say always in my dating consultations. If you've had one, you have to stand out. You have to be a little weird. You have to be out there and you have to make an impression on this person. Cause otherwise this, these dating apps, like they are numbers games. They are just, you know, like it's just, swiping and there's a million people like, why are you any different? If you're messaging someone and you're like, how was your Halloween? They got seven messages that asked the same thing that week. If you message someone and you're like, why? And you're like peanut butter on a bagel, gross or really into it. And why? Like, I know that's actually not even that crazy. That's even a little basic. Like let's even be weirder. Let's say if you I don't know, like come up with some weird scenario. Like you are going around in a circle at a new company event and you have to say a fun fact about yourself other than having complete social anxiety. What is your fun fact? Like something that someone has to pause out of their day of monotony and just boringness. And they have to say, wait a second, this person made me think This person is bringing a little bit of joy into my otherwise really boring day on this app today, right? So be that person, make an impression, and then see if you get more follow-up dates. Oh, hope that you enjoy this episode and really excited for you to hear Dr. Alexandra. I wasn't going to do it. I wasn't going to start putting together this nursery for this baby because I am superstitious AF, very scared. If you listen to this podcast before, you know that I had a lot of trouble getting pregnant. So it's very scary when people are like, well, what's the name of your baby? Are you having a baby shower? Did you decorate? Did you buy clothes yet? I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I did start decorating this nursery because I don't want to be stuck in a rut where like I'm waiting for things to come and they haven't come and it's stressful. But what makes it a lot less stressful is ordering from a place where you know that things will be shipped on time because there is no middleman. It doesn't have to like be on a boat in the middle of nowhere when you're tracking it. And it's from a place like Article. If you've never heard of Article, Article is incredible furniture. They believe in delightful design for every home. They have an online-only model, so their prices are really great. It's like mid-century modern, industrial, Scandinavian, 
boho, whatever it is, whatever you're looking to design, whether it's a baby room, outdoor furniture, your own room, your living room, they have fast, affordable shipping across the US and Canada. And you don't wait around. You actually pick the delivery time. So if I'm being superstitious, I could be like, oh, I don't want this to be delivered until after the due date, right? Let's say, who knows? But whatever you need, Article has something for you and an amazing customer care team whenever you need them. They make things smooth and stress-free. And Article's offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim this, you have to visit article.com slash Acme and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash Acme for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Hey guys, welcome back to We Met at Acme. I'm so excited to be here with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Hi. Hi, Lindsay. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you here. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into it. Well, professionally, I'm a licensed clinical psychologist and I've been working in the intimate relationship and sexuality space for over 20 years as a relationship educator. So I'm on faculty at Northwestern University and I'm a practicing couples therapist and I spend lots and lots of time taking what research shows us and what clinical wisdom teaches us and making sure that that gets translated well to the general public. That's what really makes my heart sing. So this is work I've been doing for over 20 years and I I love it. I'm always learning. I love it. And a question that I've been trying to ask everyone in the beginning, but I have a little bit of pregnancy brain right now. And usually I've been forgetting, but I'm, I'm remembering now, which is what is your favorite romantic gesture? Oh my goodness. I think my favorite romantic gesture. So I've been, my husband and I just celebrated our 25 year wedding anniversary. Congratulations. That's incredible. Thank you. And I think my favorite thing that he does for me, I love it when he makes a plan. I think that as, you know, the work that I do is a lot of like caregiving. We've got two kids who are now emerging adults. And so I think a lot of my energy is around like thinking ahead, managing, you know, all of that kind of meta big picture stuff. And so when he comes in, he's like, here's where we're going. Here's what time it is. And here's the activity. Like, oh, you get me. You know, I love that, that sort of surrender to just tucking in to a plan that he has created. I love that. And it's so funny. The other day we asked these poll questions on our Instagram and the other day someone submitted a question that was like, do men ever grow out of the feeling that making a plan is the hardest thing that they've ever done is making a dinner reservation (laughs) and people were getting a kick out of it. But it's good to know that like your husband, you know, likes to do that and he knows that it's something that you appreciate. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. What can I ask you what yours is? You know, I really like when it's, I mean, I love acts of service. And so when my husband like breaks down boxes for me, literally like that is the best. And I also love when he gives me a foot massage. Okay. Especially with the pregnancy. I imagine that feels Mm -hmm. like extra delicious. (laughs) Oh my God. It's, it's beyond. We have a few topics to dive into. The first one is an interesting topic because I feel like it can get tricky. And we've talked about it on the podcast before, but now that I am, you know, imagining one day becoming an in-law to someone and having my own, you know, daughter-in-law one day or son-in-law one day, 
I would love to talk about just the topic of in-laws in general and kind of, you know, how to deal with it. I, I have most of the time, you know, it's, it's women who will complain about their in-laws, not really men as much. Yep. And like, I wonder why that even is and mm-hmm. kind of how to talk to your parent, uh, like to your partner about their parent. If it's like a red flag, if they're like, what do you mean? You know, and, yeah. and kind of like minimizing your feelings around their parent, like what you can and cannot say to your partner about their parents and all of that. Yeah. Isn't it so wild that like you have yet to even like meet this little baby of yours and you're already imagining like what it means like to become Mm -hmm. a parent means to at some point in your life, most likely become an in-law and like to have to kind of expand from I love this child to this child is becoming part of a we and now I got to figure out where to put myself vis-a-vis that we like it's just it's really powerful and I'm struck by I'm struck by two things how little time and energy we spend talking about and thinking about in-law dynamics and two, how incredibly profound the impact is on a couple. I was just looking at some data that Forbes had of divorce individuals and they were asking the divorce individuals, why, what was the cause of your divorce? Mm -hmm. And one of the very, very, very top things were family issues. And I think it's because we have this like romantic ideal that the relationship is just you and me. If you and I get along well, it's us against the world. You know, like you're my ride or die, da, da, da. And we lose sight of the fact that no, actually you are entering an entire system and your system is welcoming an entire new person in. And I don't think we spend enough time and energy thinking about and feeling about and talking about all of those dynamics, both the joining and the receiving. It's really pretty mm-hmm. profound. Mm-hmm. It's so true. And like, I you know, I have spoken to people like, for example, I have a friend who's dating a guy and his family is religious and she is not within that religion. And so his parents won't even like acknowledge her. And she is thinking like, it'll work out. It'll be fine. You know, we'll get past it. And I'm like, no, it won't. If that's like their attitude already, because unless he is to totally like emancipate himself from his parents, which is very rare, especially considering how much we need and rely on our parents today more than ever with just how expensive everything in the world is, you know, you kind of have to be with someone that your parents approve of. Do you agree with that? Well, I think about it as like, When I'm sitting with a couple, for example, in therapy, I'm thinking about what are the ways in which the wind is in this couple's face and what are the ways in which the wind's at this couple's back? And to have Mm. family system support, you're right. It is a massive, massive wind at the back kind of a thing. It is huge. Does that mean that a couple is doomed for failure if they don't have family support? No, but it means that the wind's at their face. And I really, really would want them to be looking at who's their chosen family, you know, who else is in their network? Because you're right, some, there's something incredibly pragmatic, uh, you know, the, the pragmatics, uh, there's there's the pragmatic piece of having support and the emotional piece of having support. And it's very hard. I mean, I think it can feel, again, pretty romantic. Like it's all I need is you and love conquers all. Like these are romantic ideas that we grow up internalizing. And there's an and, and the and is yes, love can conquer an awful lot, but it also is very hard to just be the two of you that couples really do best when they're embedded in a network of support. So I would want for this, you know, your friend, I would at least be curious, like to what degree is this family system open to 
welcoming in somebody of a different faith? What might that look like? Because there are there are times when, you know, an in-law from a different background becomes the catalyst for the family system to evolve, to grow, you know, to stretch themselves a little bit for sure. But if what they're doing right now is holding their arms, hunkering down and saying, hell no, that is, that is worrisome. And it, and it puts, it puts him in a triangle, you know, sort of like him, his family of origin and his future partner. And that's a very, very difficult and exhausting triangle. And what about as a parent, like mm-hmm. how much does it serve you as a parent? If you don't like your son or daughter's partner, how much does it serve you to be clear about that versus to just let it happen and unfold because with that letting it happen and unfolding, you do have also that fear of like, what if they think that I approve of this? Right. And they just go for it. But when you're like disapproving, you have that fear of what if they cut me off? Right. Okay. So you tell me what you, I, I'd be really curious your thoughts on this one also, but I, I think that it is a parent's job, like literally a parent's job to notice and work within themselves on the reactions they're having about their kid's partner. That is first, first and foremost, because, because the way I know the way that I feel about my kids, you know, partners is shaped, Mm -hmm. is shaped massively about my own. It's shaped massively by my beliefs, my preferences, my projections onto my kid. We project left, right, and center onto our kids. Even if we've done years of therapy, the way that I've done, I mean, I've done years of therapy and I have to be constantly in a process of managing my reactions about my kids' choices. And that's my job as a parent is to manage my reactions about my kids' choices. And listen, we're not talking about abuse. If there's abuse, you know, or gross neglect or patterns of deceit, obviously those are things that need to have a conversation. But if you've got opinions about your kids' partner's profession or your kids' partner's appearance or your kids' partner's temperament, the first check-in is with yourself. And ideally, if you have a partner, then you're processing with your partner, like, hey, why am I responding this way? And that conversation happens miles away from your kid. You get your own shit figured out. May I swear on your show? Yeah, of course. (laughs) You know, you get your own shit figured out. And then if you do choose to bring it up with your kid, you do it really carefully and really curiously. But I would say to err on the side of less is more, just bite your tongue and notice your own reactions and get curious about why you're reacting the way you are. What do you think? I agree. I It's funny. My parents have always been supportive of partners of mine in the past that they might not have thought were best for me necessarily, but they've always been supportive and like, let me figure it out on my own for yeah. the most part. My sister, on the other hand, has been the opposite. Like she has made it very crystal clear when she doesn't like a partner. And I wonder like why siblings think that they can do that, but parents have all these rules to abide by. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, especially a sisterly relationship, right? I mean, don't you think so much Mm -hmm. of this, so much of the sister bond is like spilling the tea and breaking stuff down and, you know, looking at all the little iterations of stuff. So I imagine that there, there feels like more freedom in that peer to peer relationship Mm -hmm. and, and maybe competition. Like sometimes, I mean, this happens among friends too, right? When friends are critical of their friend's partner, I think that often comes from a place of insecurity or fear, right? Whether it's, whether it's, will I find somebody like that or just what happens to me? You know, if you fall in love and you head off into this relationship, what happens to me? Can I still be a priority to you? How much do I still matter to you? So sometimes 
a critique of a sister's partner may be an expression of like, hey, wait a minute, if you fall in love, you know, what happens to us? Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting perspective. And with the in-law thing, and let's say that you like, let's say it's reverse. Let's say that your in-laws like actually really like you, but you don't like them as like the daughter-in-law or, you know, whatever. What do you do in that case? And like, do you ever express it to your partner? Is that a safe space? Right. If they're close with them. Right. I think again, I think I think care is warranted and I would want I would want the first check-in like for that daughter-in-law. I would want her to be checking in with herself about okay, so what's my reactivity about? Why am I so reactive to my in-laws? What are my judgments? What am I judge what do those judgments say about me and my beliefs and my hopes and my fears? Like, you know, maybe it's I'm I'm disappointed that they aren't more like my own parents. And that's part of it too, right? If you're close to your own parents and you fall in love with somebody who does, who does family life differently, it's, we get very confused in our brains between difference and better, worse, you know, like something that feels different automatically can start to feel worse. Like the, my in-laws way of doing things is objectively worse. And so the challenge would be, okay, my in-laws way of doing things is different than my own family's way of doing things, but how might I have some compassion for it? Like they do mm-hmm. it this way because of their experiences and their family and their families or their, you know, their own preferences. And what are the benefits of their way of doing it? So I would really want that daughter-in-law to be checking in with herself and challenging herself to look for the little hidden treasures in what are the benefits of the way that my in-laws do it? Because it is, you know, the more that daughter-in-law can create generosity, patience, and curiosity about her in-laws, the better it is for her partner, right? Because we don't, that that like sense of being pulled in two different directions between my parents and my partner, it's such a painful place to be. So I would want her to be, again, selective, you know, and if she's going to raise a concern, maybe to say, what can you tell me more about why your parents do it this way? Like, I don't, I get confused when your parents do this. Can you just tell me more about why they do it this way? You know? Mm, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say that without seeming like, you know, like a holier than thou, like, I don't like the way that your parents mm-hmm. do it, but that would be like in a perfect world where there's no like intonation, that would be the perfect way to say it. Just like in a curious way. In a curious way. And, and maybe in a, like, I, the, the story I tell myself when your parents do this, the story I tell myself is that they don't respect us. But I don't know that's, mm-hmm. I don't know that's the right story. Can you give me some more context? Because your, mm. your partner knows these people, you know, for their entire life. So your partner can give a context that isn't an excuse, but a context. Here's why they act this way. I, and, mm-hmm. and maybe the partner can then say, listen, I don't love it either. But what I do love is when we're with your family, you know, it's so different. And that's, that's really wonderful as well. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's normal that you like being with your family more than your in-laws and that your partner likes being with their family mm. more than their in-laws? Or do you think that it should be, you know, all equal or this or that, or it's just, it's natural because it's what we come from? Right. I mean, it's not ever, I don't think it's ever going to be equal and doesn't have to be equal, but I for sure think that couples need to make agreements, you know, that really honor both families. And mm-hmm. I think that's hard, especially early. Like I'll, I remember the feeling I had like the first Thanksgiving I spent away from my family. Like it is really strange. It's very strange to 
get to know somebody's family, to take time away from your family, to go be with another family. It's not definitely not easy, but it also is this thing where the more you do it, the more they start to feel like another family for you. You know, it's like we have to have those experiences to build up that sense of connection. And like the fifth Thanksgiving together feels way more fun. And we feel way more familiar with the rituals and the rhythms than we do in the first one. So I want to normalize that, of course, it feels awkward and clunky and sad. Also, those first times that we are away from our family, you know, and what and what a like lovely privilege that is to have a family that you love so much that it's hard to be away from them to go be with your partner's family. You know, that's right. But it's like sometimes you don't realize that you love them until you go to your in-laws. Like I have so many friends. It's so true. I have so many friends who, you know, got married in the past few years and they're like, I didn't realize how normal, either how normal my family is or how much, like how just easy it is being around my family until I had to be with my in-laws all the time. Like it makes you appreciate your family more. So maybe it's like a, later in life feeling when you have that second family that you get to appreciate. It's really one. Yeah. I think that's such a, I hadn't thought of it that way. And it's such a great point. And where I want that person to land is just what you're saying is like, I have this renewed appreciation for my own family and I am proud of myself for the efforts I'm making to really step into my partner's family, you know, like kind of Mm -hmm. holding on to both. You know, not saying like, because it's hard with my in-laws, therefore it's wrong or, you know, but just to say like, this is, this really is, I mean, that's, that is, it's like reason number 1000 that intimate partnerships are just such opportunities for growth because even that, right. Like that's a, that's a growing edge for somebody is like, wow, by getting to know my partner's family, I have a renewed appreciation for my own family. Fascinating. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, no, it really is. Our next podcast partner is Natural Diamonds. Did you know that you can tell the difference between a laboratory-grown diamond and a natural diamond? Well, I personally can't, but I know that I have a natural diamond, and there's nothing wrong with either. But as this is our new podcast partner, I would love to tell you a little bit about what the difference is. Laboratory-grown diamonds are mass-produced in factories in just a few weeks and can be easily detected due to their distinct patterns. On the other hand, natural diamonds are over a billion years old and support the livelihoods of over 10 million people worldwide. The positive impact of natural diamonds is widespread. Around 80% of the value of every rough diamond remains in local communities and supports infrastructure, healthcare, education, and environmental protection. Your natural diamond also protects vulnerable wildlife species and brings prosperity to many less fortunate communities around the world. So if you're thinking about celebrating a special moment in your life, choose a natural diamond. Or if you have someone who is proposing soon in your life, encourage them to do the same. For more information, just visit naturaldiamonds.com. That's naturaldiamonds.com. So when you're wearing your couple's therapist hat and you have a couple who is on a totally different timeline. Mm -hmm. When are you like, this is never going to work versus this is a disagreement that we could figure out? Like, for example, if one person is ready to get married, the other person's not ready for three years. I would personally say that's not going to work. But it's like, you know, 
for example, my husband and I right now are looking into moving into a forever home and he's not, he's very much dragging his feet. And I'm like, we got to go. We got to do this. Like we have a baby on the way, like let's go. Mm-hmm. And he's like slower to make the transition to a place where, you know, we're settling down and not anymore being in like the downtown cool vibe mm-hmm. of the city. Right. And that is annoying and I want to murder him, sure. but that doesn't, but that I don't think that that's a deal breaker. I think we're going to get to a place where we find this great place and we both need it. But there are situations in relationships where I feel like two people being at different paces can be make or break. Mm-hmm. What would you say are examples of that? Yeah. Well, I I think the first thing I want to do is like, again, normalize that the chances of two partners arriving at the next commitment milestone at the same exact moment are slim to none, right? That's just not mm-hmm. going to happen. One's going to be a bit faster. One's going to be a bit slower. And there's, and there's tenderness for both. It is not easy to be the one with your foot on the accelerator because it calls up all kinds of questions of, you know, am I selling myself short? Am I settling? Am I wasting my time? That's not an easy place to be. It also, frankly, is not easy to be the one with the foot on the brake either because it feels like, what's wrong with me? Why am I not more ready? Are they going to get sick of waiting for me? Am I a disappointment? It's really hard to see my, you know, the disappointment on my partner's face. So there's, I have a lot of empathy for both the faster paced partner and the slower paced partner. And the most important thing is to, it's why I refer to this situation as a pace discrepancy. Because when you frame it that way, like all of a sudden right there, you've made it a relationship problem. And you open up the possibility then of the two people sitting shoulder to shoulder, looking together at the pace discrepancy, rather than what happens so easily is what's wrong with you? Why aren't you ready? Or what's wrong with you? Why are you such a freak and you're ready and you won't slow down? You know, so that's Mm. the first, so the framing I think matters tremendously. So viewing it as a relationship challenge. And you're right that there might, there might be times where really it is a deal breaker because what it speaks to is an underlying value, you know, and if that's, what's being, if the pace discrepancy is surfacing an underlying difference in their values where one just doesn't value marriage. One just doesn't value stepping out of the city and getting super cozy in a suburb, you know, then that's where Mm -hmm. I think it does become a deal breaker, but that's very different than, no, we're both looking at the same goal. We're just, we're just on different cases. And I think that, I think there's a lot of ways that couples, the, the problem solving gets truncated when the conversation is just why are you going so fast versus why are you going so slow? Mm-hmm. I mean, so yeah, for you and your husband, like I think the conversation becomes like, what would help you? What would help you be more ready? You know, and yeah, him, but let me just but yeah, to clarify, oh. not the suburbs, just uptown on the oh. Upper East Side. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> you're like I'm still cool. I'm still cool. I'm just <laughs> heading a little bit out of the center. I'm yeah. dead. Oh, um, no, but yes, no. Continue, continue. Mm. So then I think you get to more interesting questions. Like what would help you? Like, what are the like mm-hmm. miles? Like, what are the things we have to hit to help you be more ready? Right. You know, or what are you, what are you afraid of? Like surfacing the concerns, what scares you about the move? Because the thing we know for sure is every single milestone brings up grief. Everything you step into 
highlights oftentimes what you're stepping out of. And so part of it, I imagine mm. for both of you, and, and then it becomes shared. Like I imagine for part of you or for both of you, there's like a shared grief around the end of this chapter, like, you know, of downtown life or whatever, you know, whatever the symbolism for you has been about living where you've been living, you know? And so there is like the grief and letting go. And so maybe, you know, if he's holding all the grief, but you're holding all the possibility, you know, then it's like, you're missing the chance for him to say, no, 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 I'm super excited about Uptown. And for you to say, no, I'm actually also really sad to let go of downtown. I really have enjoyed, you know, this time. Mm -hmm. And the grief thing is so real. It's so real. I also feel like, and I'm curious what you think, like how legit is it when a man will say something like, oh, you know, my career isn't X, Y, Z yet. So I'm not ready to take this next step because I have seen it be an excuse for sure. I, you know, I had a friend who was dating a startup guy and he was like, once we, you know, get our next round of funding, I'm going to propose. And, you know, that came and went so Mm -hmm. many times. And then, you know, eventually they broke up, but then I've seen it be, you know, more legit, like, you know, in the case, we'll use the same example of moving, like of a partner being like, well, I thought that I would be, you know, here by the time we moved and I don't feel like I'm there yet. So I want to be there if we're going to move type thing. So how do you know if somebody's using something as an excuse to not take the next step versus like, it's a legitimate thing? I think it's, I mean, it's such like, (laughs) you've got your finger right on the pulse of something I think is such a huge issue. And I think especially like for straight couples, there's no, you know, every heterosexual relationship exists against the backdrop of patriarchy and all the ways that men and women are socialized to determine their self-esteem. And how do men determine their self-esteem? They're taught that their, their worth is in their sense of being a provider, their ability to be a provider, which is in some ways, the biggest bullshit, because when you look at the data now in straight couples, in one half of couples, she out earns him. So, and that's like brand new. That's like not, not that long that we've been at that point where it's like 50, 50, what, who earns more, like for right. a lot of history in terms of, you know, parents and grandparents and how they were socialized. It was like, you know, his, his income was the income or was the primary income. And so I think when a man says, I want, I'm not where I want to be. I think he's saying something about, I know my essence and my worth, at least what the culture has told me is around my ability to be a provider. And if I'm not a provider in the way that I think I should be in the way my dad was and the way my grandpa was, I don't know how to show up feeling really proud. And that's hard because sometimes he can't get out of his own head because she might be saying, dude, look at my income. Like I've got this. It's not really, I'm not waiting around for you to get to a certain place because we're fine. You're what you provide to me is about so much more than your income. It's about our sexual connection. It's about our friendship. It's about the adventures we take together. Like I'm not waiting on that, but it's really hard. I think sometimes for her to get louder than all the shit inside of his head. So I think where the rubber hits the road is what's the degree to which he's checking himself and like holding up that mirror and doing his own exploration of why do I have this belief? And if he's not curious at all, about why he has that belief, what it means, ways in which he's maybe selling himself short by that, then yeah, it is. It's a a huge risk to ask her to wait around and cross her fingers, you know, because whether it's consciously an excuse or not, I think, you know, consciously, if that's, if they're using that as an excuse, that's just like super shady. That's like really 
crappy if they're, you know, that's, that's deceitful to be like, no, 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 wait around one more round. That's deceitful. But I think sometimes it isn't even conscious, you know, it's just what, it's Mm -hmm. just what it feels like is how it has to be. And so if he is not willing to examine that belief, then she is for sure taking a risk because I don't know how that belief, you know, goes away on its own. What do you think though? Tell me. No, I, I agree with you. I feel like, you know, obviously it's a different time than when our parents were growing up, but like nothing stopped them. Like they all had like no money. They had nothing. They, you know, forged ahead. They had babies, they got married. And I just feel like it more often than not can be an excuse but then it it can be real. I think the realness depends on like how they were raised. Like if they were raised in like a scarcity way with money, like, you know, we can't we can't do X, Y, and Z until, you know, this money comes in or whatever it is, then they're probably not gonna feel comfortable taking the next step. But if they were raised in a way that was like, you know, we'll figure it out. We're going to make it work no matter what, like as long as we have each other, then that I feel like would give them a different outlook on moving forward. Yeah. Yes. So that's right. So another, another place where where we would want this couple to be looking is looking at each of their families of origin. Like what were the beliefs around money that you grew up with? What were the beliefs around money that I grew up with? And so there might be, that might be kind of like operating in the background and the couple's not talking about it. And it might be, you know, I think that there's ways like that it's again about like family support too. like who's are people giving this couple messages like you shouldn't, you know, get married until you reach this point. But you're right that there's it used to be historically that a couple, you know, it's why couples register for like forks and spoons and towels when they get married is because they are starting a home together. Well, the vast majority of couples now have had homes and they've got their own forks. You know, they don't need to be registering for forks and spoons, but it's because marriage is now. There's a sociologist, Andrew Turlin, who says that marriage is now a capstone instead of a cornerstone. Like marriage is oftentimes now the last thing that people put in place. But that, so then I think it's hard then if you're waiting to feel fully like an adult, fully settled, like when are we ever, especially those of us who are drawn towards entrepreneurship and startups, you never, ever, ever feel done. So I think you're right that it has to be like, a commitment to figuring it out. Okay. So your startup isn't where it's where you want it to be. All right, well, let's get married. And you're just going to, it's not going to be where you want it to be, whether we're married or not married. So we may as well be in it right. together, you know, and keep growing together. I think there's so many people who are on these like really creative entrepreneurial endeavors and you never like, where the hell is the finish line in those? So at some point, and, and the thing we know, the research has shown again and again and again, is it's the quality of relationships that makes for a happy life. So it's someone who's chasing like this career milestone is actually not setting themselves up for a, a life well-lived. They're better off really investing in their relationships and obviously working on a career because that's important, but investing in a relationship is what's going to help people be happier anyway. So for someone and more successful, yeah, for someone to, like miss out on a great intimate partnership because they haven't gotten their next round of funding, I'd be like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, Don't that's ridiculous. Yeah, that makes me feel sad. Have you put on a Christmas playlist yet? Because it is certainly not too early, let me tell you. And it is not too early to think about gifting. The other day I walked into FAO Schwartz and I was like, I want everything, but I don't know that my family wants me to get them stuffed animals. So if you also agree that your family doesn't want to receive stuffed animals, you should gift something that they really like, like maybe a pair of cowboy boots. 
If your parents, if your siblings don't have cowboy boots, well, Tacova's has the boots for them. Western boots for men and women handcrafted from top notch hides in a variety of timeless and fashion forward styles. You can stop by your neighborhood Tacova store, grab a cold one and shop the finest leather and Western goods in all of the land. Start off gifting season on the right foot at Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. Don't go gently, y'all. I really just wanted to say y'all. I really did. Um, so again, swing by Tacovas and they've also got some gift wrapping supplies on the house. But if you're not lucky enough to have a Tacovas near you, then you can do it, give someone a gift card. You know, that's really nice. Or just choose what you're going to get for them. You know your family, you know their sizes. Start off gifting season on the right foot at Tacovas.com. Again, that's T E C O V A S.com. Don't go gently, y'all. I was out last night with a friend of mine who's turning 35 in a few months and she is single and she is dating and she and I were having a conversation about like, you know, she will find like little things about the guys that she's dating and it's over. Like she, you know, is done. And we were talking about my friends who have been with their partners for a longer time, like since the early twenties and Mm -hmm. mid twenties. And I was saying to her, like, if she met some of the guys that my friends married, she would be like, oh, hell no, you know? But I think the fact that my friends found these people, like my other friends, you know, had found these people so young, like you have like a dispensation for their mm-hmm. their issues and their, their faults. Whereas like when you're dating in your 30s and you are a fully formed human, you have zero tolerance for someone, you know, not being exactly what you envision them to be. And I was telling her like that she needs to be a little bit more lenient because like that's almost impossible to Mm -hmm. do to herself in dating because, you know, everyone's going to have like their shit. I'm curious if you and like how you would combat that as someone dating single when they're, you know, who they are already and trying to find someone on that level instead of giving them some grace for mm-hmm. having, you know, stuff. issues and stuff. Like I have a friend whose husband lost his job and that sucks, yeah. but he's her husband and she's, they're going to get through it. Whereas like if she had met someone now dating who lost their job, she'd be like, Oh, mm-hmm. goodbye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's such a double-edged sword, right? That she she knows herself so well. She's so independent and self-sufficient. Like that's a beautiful quality to bring into a relationship is that she's not needing a partner to complete her or to settle her or to support her. She doesn't need that. But there's a way in which it becomes this like sneaky thing where because she's self-sufficient, it really is what she sees first and foremost are the risks she take, she would have to take and the accommodations she will have to make in a partnership. And so I think it is, yeah, I think she will. I mean, there's a there's a cool opportunity in offering more grace to a potential partner. She might be able to offer more grace to herself. Like, what are the ways in which she might be really hard on herself, really perfectionistic about herself? Like forgiving and allowing for less than perfect in a partner may give her an opportunity to 
kind of cut herself some slack too. So that's one thing it might open up. Then I also would want her like maybe just like even like on a piece of paper to write down like the inner circle of like things that I really, really cannot abide, you know, like the absolute deal breakers. Like I just won't do X. And then the outer circle is like, these are the things that maybe I don't love, but I could imagine making some wiggle room around. And then looking at like, you know, why? Like, why are these things in the middle circle? Like, what do they say about my values and my beliefs? And then these things in the outer circle that maybe I might be able to challenge myself to work around. Like, what, how might she grow? How might she grow with a partner who isn't as rigid and pristine about exercise routines as she is? You know, like, how might that be an asset actually that she gets to be kind of the hottie who's really into fitness and, you know, her partner is maybe not quite there. So that might be a really fun dynamic for her to, you know, be the one who takes the leadership on that or who is really celebrated for, you know, her physique and her dedication to fitness. Like there's always whatever we're accommodating or allowing for, there might be like a little hidden gift in there or like a benefit to the relationship, you know, for somebody mm-hmm. who's not quite as X as I am. Like, what does that bring to you and to your life? That's so true. I'm going to make her listen to this. Okay, good. We have some listener questions. Somebody had asked, how do you know if your new relationship is progressing at a normal level or if it's too slow? Yeah. I mean, it's such, there's a psychologist named Bernice Newgarden who like, I don't know, in the eighties or nineties put out this idea that, you know, we talk a lot about having like a biological clock, but we, we have a social clock and we so much determine our sense of normal on time, off time by looking to the right and the left, like looking at our peers and what they're doing. And so it is, I mean, even in that question, right. She's saying, they're saying, am I normal? And we are very, very, very afraid of being abnormal. Like too soon isn't easy, but feeling too late isn't easy either, you know? And I think feeling like it's not, something's not progressing fast enough. I think there's a deep fear of like feeling like you're wasting time. I think where the rubber hits the road again is like, can you turn to your partner and check in about where we're at? As long as those, Mm. as long as you can be open about those conversations of where have we been, where are we now and where might we go next? If you can have those conversations, it's much easier to tolerate a quote unquote slower timeline than if you are terrified to bring it up or you bring it up and they roll their eyes and do a, here we go again. That's where it's really hard, right? As long as there can be conversation, then I think you can feel relaxed and just enjoy where you are now. You know, so often we're like, I know I'll feel relaxed when we get to X milestone. And it ends up being this like thing where we like put our happiness in the future. And Mm -hmm. I want this person to be able to savor what they have right now. But that's probably too big of an ask unless they're able to also look at that person and be like, how are we doing? How are you feeling about us? How am I feeling about us? What's, you know, what are we doing? As long as it can be an open conversation about it, it's easier to tolerate that you're maybe going, quote, slower than your friends. Yeah, I agree. Communication is key. Someone asked about how to keep the spark as you age if you've been married for 30 plus years. (sighs) My Lord, I feel this one. This, (laughs) yeah, because the spark isn't, you know, it may be like in the beginning that it's, it's really easy to have lots of what um, sex therapists call spontaneous desire, where you just have sex because that person is there and they're cute and you're feeling it. But over time, you know, what the research has shown is that it's pretty normal and common for desire to shift. And so then couples have to be actively 
cultivating desire, you know, actively cult, like actively creating the conditions. And that means knowing what are the things that I need to be doing within myself and doing with you to help me feel open and ready for connection. That's part of it. And understanding what helps your partner, like what turns your, what helps your partner feel, you know, available for connection. And that might not be the same thing. That's a really interesting conversation. Like when do you feel most interested in being sexual with me? You know, when, what, what shuts you down? And lots of, I think, I mean, I think novelty is really important for a long-term couple. Like those things where you have an experience together, where you're where you're both kind of on shaky ground, you're doing something you haven't done before, you're going to a place you haven't done before. Like there's nothing like novelty to kind of spark desire. And of course, if desire is being compromised by deeper issues, then it's a wonderful thing to bring to a couples therapist. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. Couples therapy, huge fan. How do you rebuild trust with yourself if you have a history of breaking your own promises? First of all, I love the self-awareness in that question, you know, right, me too. It's so huge. I mean, I think the first thing I would want that person to do is, is figure out a really thick, compassionate story of why they have broken their own promises mm-hmm. and, and versus like, I break my own promises because I suck. I break my own promises because I'm a liar. I break my own you know, promises because I'm broken and damaged as a person. No, no, I don't buy it. You know, not interesting. What is like, what gets in the way? You know, what is it that gets in the way when you make a promise and don't deliver? Like that's the most, that's the question that therapists love. It's called a constraint question. Rather than being like, why did I break my own promise? You ask what kept me from honoring my promise? It's a really Mm. different way of coming at it. What kept me from honoring my promise? Then like you start to look at what are the blocks? And it might be that this person is making promises that nobody could honor. They're way too perfectionistic. They're way too self-abandoning. So it may be that the problem is this person is setting themselves up for failure because they don't have a reasonable sense of what they ought to expect from themselves. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, yeah. What do you think about that one? That's an interesting one. I think, I think it depends what kind of promises we're breaking and talking about. If it's like, drinking related, Mm -hmm. then maybe it's, you know, you need help beyond yourself. If it's dating related, like you keep texting them first when they should come to you, you know, if it hasn't been working, why, like ask yourself why you're continuing to do it. Like it's almost like self-sabotage at that point, you Mm -hmm. know? And if you really actually want it to work, because if you do, then you would commit to trying something different, mm-hmm. but it's, it's easier said than done. Like it's all about willpower in, yeah. in every, in every instance, I feel. It's also it's all, like the dating, like the one, the example you had about like, if this person keeps texting somebody that they don't want to be texting mm-hmm. and with the, actually with the drinking one too, there needs to be like, like as Aristotle says, nature abhors a vacuum. Like if you just say, don't do that, it's not going to work. Cause then you're just like white knuckling it. Okay. So what are you going to put in there instead? Instead of, instead of alcohol, what are you doing instead? Instead of texting them, what are you doing instead? Like fill that space, right? Rather than just like Mm. gripping the wheel so tightly and hoping that you don't break a promise again. No, like what else? Like fill, create bounty around it, you know, like bounty and distraction and other stuff. I think that's really, really, really important. I love that. Okay. I'm going to ask you some rapid fire questions. Oh Lord. Okay. 
if you're 29 and older, would you start dating someone who you weren't sure you could see yourself marrying? Yes or no? Yes. Because because it seems un- unrealistic to expect on date number one or two or three that you can imagine that future. It takes it takes time and experience to know. I'm not saying wait forever, but I'm saying give it a little mm-hmm. bit. Give it a hot minute. It's interesting because all of the yeses are men and all of the noes are women. Oh, all the yeah. when you ask us to guess, what? what do you mean? Like everyone oh, who said poll. yes. This is a poll. Yeah, you did? yeah, it's a poll question. Oh. Yeah, everyone who said yes is a man, meaning like you know, men will date whoever, whenever, even if they don't want to marry them versus women are not, you know, messing around. Fascinating. Yep. For those married or in a long-term relationship, were you infatuated right away with your partner or did those feelings grow? Are you asking for me personally? Mm-hmm. No, the mm-hmm. feelings grew. He, he was my, he was my best friend in college. And then we had some beers and kissed. And then I panicked. I was like, wait, I can't date you. You're my friend. And I pushed, pushed and pulled him for so freaking long because I loved him, but I didn't know. And I, he's, he's shorter than me. And I was like, mm. I can't, how can I be with someone shorter than me? It took me forever to figure it out. And then I was like, if I don't know right away, it must be wrong. It, no, so it took me, it took me a while to figure it out and God love him. He was patient. He's like, all right, get your shit together. I'll be here. <laughs> I love it. Did you have, was it right away for you, with your husband? It was right away for me, yeah. but it's, it's so different. And it, like, I think both situations, yours and mine are, you know, still amazing relationships. I do think that when the man takes longer to know, it can be a hundred percent. I agree. Yeah, I agree. You're right. I think that, and for a long time, I wouldn't, I was embarrassed to share Todd and my love story. Cause I felt mm-hmm. like it was somehow we were less than because it wasn't instant chemistry for me. No. And, and what research shows is that lots and lots of couples, like we, I think we make a hierarchy of love stories. If it's not like instant fireworks, somehow it's not, you know, meant to be. And I think that there is, you know, there's lots of ways, like lots of beautiful ways that people fall in love, the slow burn and the fireworks, et cetera, et cetera. And there's not better or worse, but you're so right about the gender piece for straight couples as if she's feeling yeah. like she's waiting around for him to figure his shit out. That's really hard. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. I'm not doing good with the when, rapid fire. I'm not helping you. Do no. Here we go. Rapid. When, we'll just do a few more. <laughs> when in a new relationship, when does bickering start to happen? One month, five months, around a year? Mm, I would hope it's not one month. And bickering shouldn't ever. I, I want people to treat bickering as a problem. Bickering is a problem. It means there's something you got to figure out about why are you mm. not. I mean, mm. obviously people get snappy, but that it shows there's something going on in a, in a relationship. I think usually people say it takes about a year for like deeper patterns to emerge. Mm-hmm. But I want people to not tolerate kind of snippiness that's, con- yeah, that's consistent, you know. Agreed. Agreed. Is it necessary to make your future brother-in-law or sister-in-law your bridesmaid? groomsmen? Oh, I mean, I, I would say that if it keeps, if it keeps the peace, you know, like I think sometimes these things, I think there are ways that we do need to accommodate, not sell ourselves out, not mm-hmm. self-abandon, but be gracious and be strategic for the sake of peace. That is part of being in a partnership. That's part of joining a family system. And so you know, mm-hmm. and, and to really, really get clear on what are the hills you want to die on in lots. There's, mm-hmm. There are so few hills that are worth dying on. So if having the brother-in-law in the groom's party makes everybody happy, it makes the day go more smoothly, suck Keep it up, suck it up, buttercup. If you and your significant other are about to move in together, is it normal or a bad sign that you're, you've started arguing a lot more? Yeah. Well, around transitions, like transitions are highly, highly, highly triggering. Like they activate so much stuff. 
inside of me, inside of you and in the space between us. So bickering around a transition makes sense because it's it's also stressful and moving in together is a freaking, I think that, I mean, that was the low point of Todd and my entire relationships when we moved in together, like two years before we got married. It was awful. I hated that transition. I would not wish it on anybody. Mm-hmm. And creating a home together is really triggering, right? Because people have ideas about like where things should go and who should have what role. And so I would normalize that some amount of bickering and stress makes sense. But it also means Mm -hmm. that that means couples need to be working even harder on taking time out, coming back, having conversations, like learning all those relationship skills so that you are like putting the wind at your back and, you know, doing as best a job you can around the transition. But that's a biggie. Yeah. A hard transition. Biggie. All right. Last one. What do you think is more important in a fulfilling relationship? A sense of camaraderie based on similarities between you two or a sense of empathy for the differences? Oh, empathy for the differences. Mm. For sure. Yeah. Camaraderie camaraderie matters, but sameness, sameness is not a prerequisite for intimacy at all. And in fact, those differences, mm. like those differences are, are growth opportunities. It's all we were saying before about the in-law stuff too, right? Like another, like a different way of doing things isn't necessarily a worse way of doing things. So then having empathy for the differences is so good in terms of like growing us as people. Then when you become a parent, you know, and you're parenting somebody, this little person who's so different than you. So it's like, it's like the practice grounds for what you're going to have to do as a parent anyways, you know? That's so true. This has been amazing. Thank you so much so much. I feel like there's so many tidbits, so many tidbits of amazing wisdom in here. Before you leave us, can you leave us with a quote or piece of advice that we can take from you or that has helped you throughout the years? Oh my gosh. Okay. I guess I will go with my favorite. So relational self-awareness is the through line in, in all of my work. It's about continuing to look at our own reactions to stuff. And so I think one of the most important skills is to check in with yourself about how am I showing up in this conversation with my partner? Like, how am I coming across? I think it's so easy, especially for those of us who grew up feeling pretty invisible when we were little or feeling like our voice didn't matter to underestimate how much power we have to shape a conversation, to shape an interaction. And so keeping yourself in the ring and really noticing what's my tone? What are my words saying? Like, am I inviting closeness? Am I shutting down closeness? So that check-in, not to make yourself feel guilty, but just to be a little bit in awe of how powerful you are and how and how much you shape the dynamic. I love that. Where can everybody find you, follow you, and potentially work with you if you're open? Yeah. So my website is a great place to go, DrAlexandraSolomon.com. It's got links to my social, which is Solomon on the Instagram. And I have a new book coming out and all the information about me, my courses, my books is all on, on the website. I would love to, to connect with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Alexandra. Thanks. Have a good one. Thank you. note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.